Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Now we're going to talk about the biopsychosocial spiritual assessment. Obviously, there are four components to this assessment. You look at the biology, the psychology, the sociocultural, and the spiritual. I'm going to refer to the biopsychosocial spiritual as the BPSS assessment. Basically, it's it's a concise summary of client information. Uh, BPSS differs from a diagnosis because it provides a brief historical background about the possible causes for whatever problem the client is presenting with, as well as identifying some of the strengths and resources that the client brings to uh, the table. Although assessments tend to be problem-focused, this is our history, they, they should include client strengths, assets, and um, things that could help treatment along, as well as things that could be barriers to treatment. So again, the BPSS assessment, uh, it, it provides a context, a historical context for whatever it is that the client's presenting with. And this is different than a DSM diagnosis, which is simply a categorization of a cluster of symptoms and a level of impairment and perhaps um, acknowledgement of uh, distress. The biopsychosocial spiritual assessment, ultimately, uh, you want to answer the question, how do these four areas contribute to the client's current functioning? For bio, we're looking at your basic needs, um, food, shelter, clothing, medical health, physical capabilities in the physical environment. In psychological, we are looking at the individual's history, personality styles, intelligent, mental abilities, uh, self-concept and identity, even medication history, diagnosis history, and treatment history. Now, there's a cultural issue that we need to discuss here briefly for the psychological. When you're working with biracial or multiracial individuals and you're identifying how they identify themselves and how they have identified themselves, this can differ over time. So, for example, if you're working with an individual who considers himself biracial, his mom was Latina and his father was African American, it could be that in the beginning of his life he identified more closely with his Latina mom. Perhaps he spent more time with her. Perhaps the neighborhood in which he grew up had a higher concentration of uh, Latino families. Perhaps even spoke some Spanish at home. But as he grew into adolescence and then adulthood, he identified more with his African-American male father. Uh, you know, of course, it could be reversed. It, it could be any, possi any possible combination of um, shifts in identities. But this is very different than um, a monoracial individual for whom racial identity, ethnic identity, has not necessarily been a, um, a central focus of their development. So that's a cultural issue that needs to be taken into consideration during the biopsychosocial spiritual assessment. Now, sociocultural assessment, this is where you look at who are your clients' friends, families, what is their community like, what's their social environment, their political environment, even their economic environment. The use of the genogram is really helpful in this one um, to provide a family systemic overview of relationships and perhaps types of issues that have existed generationally that might contribute to the client's current situation. 
you can you can ask um, about the sociocultural context by um, using open-ended questions to begin with, such as, tell me, who is your family? And then as you go along in the interview, you would use closed-ended questions, such as, would you characterize your relationship with him as abusive? One of the things that's important to remember as you do a social, uh, social history or um, establish the sociocultural context is that you need to be familiar with developmental theories about ages and stages, transitional processes, life domains, cultural expectations, and the life course. This is uh, particularly important when working with kids as the developmental processes of a five-year-old can differ greatly from those of a nine-year-old or even a 13-year-old. One of the things that is important culturally to keep in mind in the sociocultural part of the assessment is to find out what groups are currently important and what groups have been important. For example, uh, social institutions, they help transmit systems of oppression. So, for example, school. Even though it is a sociocultural institution that many of us think of in positive terms, especially those of us in academia who have been fairly successful in schools, it's important to remember that our clients haven't always had positive experiences, especially when those institutions are perpetuating racism, uh, discrimination, other types of isms, prejudice against one group over another. When we think about school, for example, could be that a parent had a really bad experience in school. Some of the Latino parents uh, with which I worked in Austin, Texas, they described being paddled by their teachers for speaking Spanish in classes. So this obviously can create a really negative image of school as an institution. It doesn't mean that education as a concept is necessarily not supported by the family. So when you're doing a sociocultural assessment, it's important to tease out these issues of culture, such as attitudes towards education. Also to remember that this idea of race, what is your race, that is socially constructed as well. Um, back at the turn of the century, Italians, Jews, and Irish were not considered white. And if you need to do more thinking about that, there are plenty of books that can uh, illuminate that. Anderson and Collins, Race, Class, and Gender, an anthology is an excellent place to, to start looking at, at some of those issues. The final area is the spiritual assessment. This is really uh, what we consider your sense of self, sense of meaning and purpose, what your value base is, and what your religious life is. Now, the spiritual assessment wasn't officially included in the biopsychosocial assessment uh, before the 2000s. Uh, it's, it's a relatively new area, and so people are still trying to figure out exactly what the assessment looks like. The most important thing is, when, when you think about context, is how does the client see their spiritual life? What do they understand to be their um, affiliation with religious organizations? What is the context for spirituality and religion in their life? One way to think about a clinical use of this is if somebody talks about spirituality as being important, you can uh, conceptualize therapy as change that occurs in um, a sacred space of healing. That's a concept uh, that was proposed by Hawkins back in 95. And I think it can be really useful um, as a way of connecting and establishing uh, a real trusting therapeutic alliance with your client. Gray Beal 
in an article that he wrote uh, for Families and Society in 2001 about integrating strengths-based assessment with a traditional biopsychosocial assessment. He's developed an acronym called ROPES that you can use to think about strengths in assessment. And ROPES stands for Resources, Options, Possibilities, Exceptions, and Solutions. And uh, I won't go into the details uh, here, but you can look up his article in Families and Society. It's 2001, and he does an excellent job of discussing this system and how it integrates with a traditional assessment. Finally, I want to say something about working with kids. The biopsychosocial spiritual assessment, as we've been talking about it, has, has assumed that you're speaking with an adult who can provide information about their own life. Now, if you're working with a kid, the situation can be somewhat different. Oftentimes, kids are not the ones who have uh, instigated coming in. They've been brought in. Um, they might not necessarily even see that there's a problem. And particularly if they're young enough, they don't understand that their life has a context. It, it just is their life. So in the first interview with a kid, it's important to think about them uh, as being involuntary. You want to ask yourself, who thinks the child has a problem? Why is this a problem now? What is going on in the child's life now? This, again, can pro provide you context that the biopsychosocial spiritual assessment might provide with an adult. But these are questions that you would ask of the parents or the legal guardians or a caseworker or whoever happens to be with the kid. And when you're with the kid, it's important to ask the questions, how can I be helpful to you? What brings you here? Why do you think you're here? This can provide information about what the kid knows about the situation so that you can determine uh, what treatments you're using and, and who actually is the client. Susan Lucas, in her book, Where to Start and What to Ask, uh, which is an excellent book, she, she cautions clinicians who are working with kids um, to uh, don't focus on entertaining the child. Remember that just because children can't express themselves in words doesn't mean they won't understand you when you express yourself. So, for example, even though a child might only know four words to express basic emotions, happy, sad, mad, and scared, they, uh, it doesn't mean that they won't understand you when you use words that provide a little bit more subtlety of expression, such as um, overjoyed or frustrated or anxious. Another thing that Lucas reminds clinicians working with kids is that most children communicate through symbolic and metaphorical play. And this could look like um, uh, using play therapy, specific types of play therapy, could be drawing, and there are certain assessments like um, family tree person that you can do with the client to gather information about how they see their world, how they see their world. But also to uh, think about working with a client less in terms of a conversation that you might have with an adult, which might start out with, so tell me why you're here. What would you like to work on? These sorts of conversations aren't necessarily going to be effective with kids for whom communication is more metaphorical and is often done through play. And finally, when you're interviewing a kid uh, for the first time, it's important to understand what the role of the parent is, both for the kid and for the parent. For example, uh, if the kid is an older child, uh, 10, 11, 12, they might be concerned about the parent knowing what's being talked about in the, in the session, and the parent might be expecting to know exactly what's being 
talked about in the session. What's true is that although parents have the legal right to uh, documentation in a chart, it's not necessarily the case that you need to disclose exactly what happens in a session to a parent. You can simply report on how the child is doing vis-a-vis their goals for treatment, and that's a sufficient and a reasonable way to both maintain confidentiality, establish rapport with the kid, and also to make sure that you're setting firm boundaries between your work with the child and your work with the parent. Now, the last type of assessment that one does in uh, the typical assessment phase of working with someone is the mental status exam. So if we think about a timeline, you have your biopsychosocial spiritual that could start as far back as grandparents or great-grandparents, leads all the way up until today. Slight overlap would include symptoms and impairment and issues that are related to diagnosis, right? And the diagnosis, of course, provides a snapshot of uh, the client's current functioning. And then the final part of this timeline is in the session right then, how do you see the client? What do you observe about the client? Whereas diagnosis and the BPSS have all been based on uh, the facts, the data that you gather from your client, and, and of course some of that data might need to be corroborated with other pieces of data such as school reports or court records or other people in, in the client's family or a social environment uh, providing corroborating information. All of those facts make up your assessment. The mental status exam, they're your observations, and they can be used to establish uh, what your observations were of the client when you first meet them, and then you can think about how that has changed over time. What has changed? When did it change? Uh, Did it change for the better or for the worse? The typical mental status exam covers appearance. Uh, How does somebody look? How do they behave? Their speech. Um, For example, is it slurred or pressured? their emotions. This looks at mood and affect. Um, Mood would be how does the client feel most of the time and uh, the affect is how is the client showing emotions. If a client reports that they're sad most of the time but they're smiling and they laugh a lot when they're in session with you uh, and they report that they're sad then their affect would not be congruent with their mood. Thought process and content is the next area how does the client think um, and, and what does the client think about? You would want to do your uh, screening for uh, suicidal and homicidal ideation uh, at this point of the mental status exam. Sensory perceptions, these would be uh, indications of illusions, uh, delusions or hallucinations. Uh, so you would want to find out if your client is hearing things, seeing things or feeling things that other people don't see, hear, or feel. These can include tactile, auditory, uh, or vis- visual hallucinations. The, the, the last two parts of the mental status exam are mental capabilities, um, uh, and this is commonly referred to as oriented times three. Um, so uh, are they oriented towards time, place, and person? Do they know what time it is? Do they know where they are? And do, do they know who they are? You can also do sort of simple tests of intelligence, concentration. A classic concentration test would be uh, serial threes for kids or serial sevens for adults. That might be uh, counting backwards from 100 
to one using uh, sevens. Uh, and if you're working with kids, you could do it counting backwards from 20 to one using threes. So 17, 14, 11, those sorts of things. And then finally, attitude. How does the client behave towards you? Mental status exam is your observations, and you can think about doing the mental status exam during your initial meeting with the client, or it can last over a couple of sessions as you gather more information. Putting it all together, you have your biopsychosocial spiritual, which provides the context. Some of that information can be used to help with creating a diagnosis because you have some symptoms that need to be present over time in order for diagnoses to occur. And also you want to get an idea of how their level of functioning has changed over time, uh, which would indicate how much impairment they're currently experiencing versus how much they typically experience. And then finally, the mental status exam, which is simply an organized way of documenting what your observations of the client would be. And then once you have that, then you have to do your, uh, your write-up and you have to be able to interpret all the information that you have gathered into a final evaluation. And this evaluation is where you pull the most important information together so you can work on your treatment planning and, of course, finally, the, uh, the interventions. So that's it for biopsychosocial spiritual, DSM diagnosis, and mental status exam. So I'm Jonathan Singer. Thanks for being with me today for this episode of the Social Workers Podcast. If you have suggestions for future podcasts, please feel free to email me at cooljazz at flash.net. And to all those social workers out there, keep up the good work.